Welcome back, everybody, to The First Step. It's me, Jill Sachek, and I'm here today with Bobby Malatesta. And we don't really know each other very well, but I'm excited to talk to her. Her specialty is addiction, and she has a podcast of her own, and we connected through a Fearless 30 challenge where we're both challenging ourselves to be valuable, vulnerable, and visible out there in the world and share our gifts with people. So welcome, Bobby. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. I am tickled to be here, Jill. Thank you so much. This is going to be fun. So this topic of addiction intrigues me because my jam is health and wellness. And I think a lot of people struggle with addiction and a lot of the time it gets in the way of their health and wellness. So before we dive deep into that conversation, do you want to just start by telling us a little bit more about you and what brought you to this point where you're sharing with others about addiction? Sure. So I have I have been involved in gambling since I was little. Um, I was surrounded by a lot of drug and alcohol consumers. And I remember making a conscious decision when I was like 17, I'm not going to grow up to be an alcoholic like them. Well, little did I know, and I probably only realized this in the last five or six years, it was a trade-off. I was still escaping. I wasn't using alcohol maybe, but I was definitely going to the casino. I was sneaking in before I was legal to get in. I was doing scratch-offs and lottery tickets and, you know, I don't know about you, Jill, but I learned most of my lessons upon reflection. <laughs> like once I get some information, it's like, oh, that makes sense. Um, so I think that's really where I ended up being a, I used to call it a gambleholic and people used to, you know, like point to the 1-800 number on the slot machines to get help, even if they were with me, kind of like, haha, but they all knew, like everybody knows when you're, everybody knows. Um, so eventually my alcohol usage ramped up as well. Um, still so many, so many deaths and destruction. I am of the belief that even if you're not abusing a substance or something, you said it before the show that everybody's addicted to something, which, which technology would probably be the leader. If you can't fill in the blank with sugar, you know, sex shopping, uh, Netflix, whatever the thing is, um, so I never, it never interested me to get in this field. Never. Um, finally in 2013, things got bad enough that I went to GA on purpose for the first time. Um, I had gone, I participated in studies and diff did different things, but never really, they told me I couldn't be on Wheel of Fortune. Like I was trying out for Wheel of Fortune and GA, they said, well, you can't do that. And I didn't get it at the time. Instead, I resented 12 steps and I resented everything about recovery. Cause I'm like, if I'm not the addict, why do I have to go? Cause as a teenager, um, I used to go to Alatine and all this stuff. It was, it was just all noise. Um, and then in 2017, I went into rehab. Uh, 2013, I was not gambling for two years. I was going to GA. I thought I was doing the right things, but there were still puzzle pieces missing. Uh, the drinking ramped up because there was no gambling. Um, go to treatment, come out. I found love with the guy in there, which is totally against the rules. Um, but he had a place in my life too. And he was an entrepreneur. And when he went, 
he had to pay out of his pocket for gambling treatment where I lived in Kansas. So there was like a, a program, a scholarship from the state and, and all of that. And that became a pain point for me. I was like, well, that's not fair. Like, why, why is it different from state to state? So that's kind of how my big mission was born was like, well, how do I fix this? Well, I'm never going to learn politics because they totally don't interest me. And I think it's all bullshit. Any BS anyway, sorry, I don't know if we're allowed to swear on your show. Um, So this, this idea of um, trying to figure out the funding and help started evolving. And I also believe that we don't play enough. Like as adults, we don't play. Mm -hmm. So if you go to an amusement park or something with your kids bowling, it's about the kids experience, right? Like the parents can have a good time, but generally if you really watch their enjoyment is out of their children's enjoyment. So when do adults get to play themselves, right? When do they make a conscious effort to skip down the street or be silly or finger paint or whatever without kids around? And and maybe it's because society doesn't really normalize that. But so I believe that if we're playing and we're increasing our dopamine through healthy outlets like that, um, and we give people a safe place to go that's stigma-free. Like when you go to a restaurant, I want to have... Um, dessert or offering to celebrate clean time, not just birthdays and anniversaries. Like these are just a couple of the nuggets. So anyway, so this big dream of a chain of recovery playgrounds was born in the last few years. So um, I've taken all kinds of training from starting my own podcast to speaking engagements to business, all kinds of things. And that's that's the dream is to create a chain of recovery playgrounds where it's a safe spot with a nonprofit side attached to that also helps people transitioning out of prison, rehab, off the streets and giving them the training and the resources to uh, survive and thrive. Oh my God, I love that. I think I did catch a whiff of that somewhere in your content, but I'm glad you explicitly explained what your dream is. I think it's powerful and needed. And it just makes me think of my teenagers here growing up in a small town and same for me growing up in a small town. And as you say, adults in general, I think our world, our environment, that there isn't enough opportunities to go have clean fun. You know, a lot of what we do revolves around drinking and smoking or gambling. And wow, that would be amazing to have that as a normal piece of every city or town, someplace you can go and play, as you say. I love it. I am rooting for you. Thanks. So, Um, One question, although lots of questions came to mind when you were talking, but one question was, what led you to realize you needed, wanted help? Because when I was thinking about our show, that was one thing that, because I imagine our conversation might lead into what people can do when they know they need help or steps they can take once they realize they have a problem, but maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the things, the markers that were going on for you that were really obvious wake-up calls or signposts that you needed help. So if people hear it, they can also, you know, 
feel like, okay, maybe I'm there too. So the first time in 2013, um, when I quit, I had just gotten divorced um, and I had gotten my dream job. I was, my goal was to be director by the time I was 40. I did it at 39. I was moving to Kansas city to take this dream job. Um, there, a big part of the divorce wasn't because my husband was bad. It was cause I was bad. I was stealing money from the household, like not blatantly, like how you steal, but manipulating the finances, manipulating our relationship so that I can gamble as much as I want. He was working third shift. We would do our goodnight call. He'd think I'd be going to sleep and I'd be leaving to go to the casino um, and trying to beat him home in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a pretty big clue when you're like stealing from your family and not just money, time, energy. Um, I yeah. learned in rehab, we steal from the dog, right? Like I'm not walking the dog. I'm not paying attention to the dog. I wasn't home for the dog. It, it, it doesn't sound, I don't know. It might sound a little weird, but truthfully, you rob from everyone around you, whether it's you're being present mentally. Um, so then I get to Kansas city with this dream job and I moved out there July 7th was my first day of work. And August 16th, I went to the casino and lost everything I had. So I didn't even have my rent money, nothing maxed out credit cards. They, I knew they were coming to get me like, cause I, I think I was due like $800 and I didn't have, I got paid bi-weekly, whatever, all the things. Um, so it was a lot of fear. And I think that that's why I went into GA the first time. So after that all night, um, excursion and then doing the math, here's the thing that saved my life. I'm responsible. Like I have this responsible thing to me. Um, so I knew I was in trouble. Like that, that particular year, I knew I owed the IRS money and I was in there in March and they're like, you don't need to be here until April. You don't owe it till April. I know, but I know I literally don't have enough coming in to pay you, you know, like trying to be ahead of the game. So <clears throat> that was a, it was a Saturday night and that Sunday I found a GA meeting to go to for Monday, started applying to all kinds of second jobs to increase my revenue and all of that. And, um, went to GA. I was, like I said, pretty successful for a couple of years. And then I started stepping away more and more. And like I said, my drinking was ramping up and there just became this point where it wasn't fulfilling. I was having more thoughts of, um, what is the freaking point? Like, what's the point of all of it? So I go to work, to work a job, to earn money, to pay for rent and a car so that I can go to work to do the same thing over again. Like those thoughts started getting very consuming and I wasn't fulfilled. And it wasn't because I was like locked in the house. I was going to Zumba. I had, um, I went to volleyball. Like I was in, involved. I wasn't maybe present, but I was involved, you know, eventually it got to where I relapsed. I was skipping volleyball to go to the casino, right? Like, so the activities that you enjoy. And it's now that I can tell you, it's because I never fixed the problem the first time, the, the, the root cause. It wasn't just about escaping. What the hell are you escaping from? What's broken? What are you not looking at? And I still have, that'll be an ongoing process. Um, cause I'll, things just show up. The more you learn, the more you can reflect, you know, and it's like, oh, that makes sense. And um, that's the beautiful thing about recovery, I think. So when I went to treatment, it was a 28 days I was in there. And I remember being very mindful about it, um, saying, 
this is the closest thing I'll ever be to jail. I do not want to go to jail. And I know a lot of people that went to jail or died from gambling. And I'm like, I'm going to go in and I'm going to work on myself. And it was just time. And then afterwards, my employees were like, oh, we thought you were like getting abused or in a bad relationship or something. My personality and who I had become that last year before going to treatment was so visible to everybody else. And I was just dark. I mean, I was three or four Long Island iced teas in every night. I'd go to the casino, lose everything, then go to the bar. It was just, it was just gloomy. Yeah. It's not lit. So just to um, reflect back and for listeners, because sometimes I think we need to hear things more than once. Some of the markers were that you were hearing these questions in your head on repeat, like what's the point and seeing the futility of this repetitive cycle and feeling unfulfilled. And you were, I don't know if this is part of what you were just saying, but you were aware of this kind of lying, stealing, manipulative behavior going on. And also other people in your life were noticing yeah, change in you or that you weren't yourself. Although I'd be curious if they were telling you that, and I would imagine probably not. And if not, do you wish people would have said more earlier to you? Do you think it would have mattered? I, I don't think it matters. Yeah, we, we, don't, we don't make our move until we're ready to make the move. And if you're doing it for someone else, chances are it's not going to stick as well as if you're, if it's your time. So do you think people have to reach kind of a rock bottom to make a shift in their life when they're really caught in some kind of destructive behavior? I think it's different for different people. Mm -hmm. um, I listen to Recovery Elevator. It's an alcohol-free podcast. It's like one of my favorites. He's one of my recovery mentors. And he asks that question, like, what's the rock bottom moment? And some guests have a very clear thing. And then there's a lot of us, and I think I'm in this, I didn't have the DUI that sent me away. I didn't get arrested. I didn't, you know, like those things didn't happen, but it doesn't mean that I wasn't losing in life. You know, it was like a culmination. Yeah. Or you at least felt like you were at a low or at least not living high in your highest purpose. Exactly. Yeah. So what would you want to share with um, other people that you discovered on your journey that could help others? Well, this is what I think I need to be a big mouth about, Jill. This is a great question. So again, being exposed to addiction and 12-step, and 12-step's been around over 100 years, um, probably closer to 150 for AA. I only thought that there were these uh, certain ways that you have to recover. You you either go to AA or GA, um, maybe you get a therapist, maybe you go to rehab, right? Like those are the ones. But what I've learned the last few years, and this is where someone like you comes in, right? First of all, we don't all recover the same way. Second of all, I believe that there's not just one way. I think that it has to do with building like almost like your survival package. Um, so for, for me, I've explored things, everything from recovery Dharma, which I had never heard of, um, going to yoga, doing, um, activities, going to retreats, like the list goes on and on of the things that are in my arsenal now. And I really believe that 
my role is to communicate that all these things exist Mm -hmm. to help um, people, counselors, professionals in the industry promote these other options as well as traditional, because sometimes the world's changing for starters. Anybody can place a bet online from home at any time, anywhere. And some of those people that are hiding behind devices aren't socialized enough or care to be to walk into a room full of strangers with this set rules, you know, like there's certain behavior and structure and, and all of that. And then not for nothing in the room is a bunch of addicts, right? Like to, to put it as blatantly obnoxiously as possible. So if you're in there and a, a senior addict, we'll call him, um, believes in one thing and they're ramming it down your throat, but maybe it's not true for you, then that doesn't work. And you leave and then you don't go back and you think that that's the only alternative. Mm-hmm. So um, teaching people how to use play, how to go back just to have the conversation and then what these resources are has kind of become what I think my role is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. And I, you, this is like the second time that I'm, it comes to mind that the core issue, right? Why we get into addictive behavior in the first place, I believe is we are running, escaping from an uncomfortable sensation and it's unconscious. It's subconscious. We don't realize that it's the first thing that we're starting to respond to is this discomfort inside of ourselves. And I think all I think as well, those programs can be very helpful. And I also think that if we can become aware of the core trigger, you know, this, what we're experiencing is discomfort. And we don't like that. We want pleasure. We we don't like unpleasant. We don't like pain. And this is this goes back to Buddha's teachings like 2,500 years ago that life here on earth is suffering because as humans, we are constantly fluctuating between pleasant and unpleasant. Inherently, as a human, we are going to experience duality. Everything is impermanent. And I think that for everybody irregardless of what escape they're choosing, essentially is caught in that craving, you know, wanting more of the things that feel good and repelling or running from the things that feel bad. And we get really creative about how we do that. But I think that's the core of addiction and suffering. And once you learn that you can observe, and this is where mindfulness practices come in, once you become conscious of sensations in the body, you can start to have a real life experience of their impermanence. And I think that's the real key or gift or what I'm so passionate about is um, helping people to see that if you can become aware of sensations, you can actually learn to observe the impermanent nature of them. And you'll see that typically a sensation will arise and pass within 90 seconds. So whereas we start to 
feel that unpleasant sensation and we start to make it an immediate choice, an immediate movement to grab the keys, to get in the car, to go to the casino or grab the bottle and some ice and a glass in those 90 seconds. And we already start to trigger this escape. If we can teach ourselves, practice, learn to observe that uncomfortable sensation, even for a minute or two, what we start to recognize is that it is changing. So it won't stay that powerful. It won't stay that intense as that initial, you know, rush of biochemical reaction in the body. And that's where I think our, our power is, is in realizing if we just can wait a moment and be mindful of what we're experiencing and stay with what we're experiencing rather than react to it, we realize there's a, a profound choice in that moment. And if we don't react immediately, that craving or that sensation actually will pass. And we only have to do that a few times to realize it won't overtake us because I think when that craving or that sensation arises, it really feels like genuinely feels like, I don't know if we're going to die, but like, you know, like there's a panic, there's a, there's a strong drive to take ourselves out of that feeling. You are on the money as far as what I know to be true. And I went in March to um, a stress retreat and she talked a lot about what you're talking about that, you know, that time period. And then once we're triggered in the, you know, the fight, flight, fear or freeze, it can last up to 24 hours as women, like nine for men. So you're right. There's, there's being present enough to know that we can, we have to like notice it. And then, you know, like just get through that very, very short period of time. When you think about 90 seconds, that's tiny, right? Um, and then the other end of it, and, and you touched on this in the beginning, was the fulfillment on the other side. Like you do the work and then you don't have to live in that cycle of, okay, what am I doing all this for? Um, I personally like have had the least amount of money in my whole life since I started on this journey, the least amount of stability, the least amount of, you know, that, that comfort of that circle, but have been the happiest that I've been my whole life. Like it, it's not about all the things that people tell us it's about. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you're making me, this is also not the first time that I've had this thought since we've been talking. And I always hesitate to bring these things up because for fear of sounding like a conspiracy theorist or, you know, getting on this track of like them, they, but I'm going to say it anyways. Um, you know, I was just driving the other day and on the radio listening to this new, I don't know, epidemic of gambling on stimulated by watching sports games and then advertising during those sports games to gamble and this up and coming new problem with young people because they're watching these games and then advertisers are directly targeting them to gamble and it's starting so young. And I was driving, listening to this thinking like how and why on earth 
would this be allowed similar to my questions over the years of like, why and how is there a liquor store on every street? And I don't know how much you know about Canada and in particular British Columbia, where I live now with marijuana and how Mm. and why would there be (laughs) cannabis stores and you know, legalizing these substance, making it so easy and appealing, like drinks and gummies and edibles that are so, you know, normalized, like peach fuzzies. And I I just, there's part of me that thinks there is a conspiracy to trap us in these cycles where we won't recognize or realize our full potential because if we did the people who are really benefiting and getting rich off us staying kind of tiny and stuck would no longer have the power that they have do you ever have crazy thoughts like this (laughs) I (laughs) I do but they're becoming less and less crazy and more and more obvious and I too don't and and I actually, I guess I've been pretty selfish, right? I didn't want to throw myself in the line of fire when you have these kind of conversations. It, mm-hmm. it comes difficult. Um, I, I recently read, have you read Conversations with God? I have, but ages ago. That book just created this whole shift in me. And, and I looked it up. It was written like close to 30 years ago. And I'm like, if it's been out there and there's all these people following it, how did they not figure it out? But one of the premises that I took away kind of speaks to what you're talking about, um, where if you ended the, like, if you stopped spending money on war, for example, you'd have enough money to feed all the people that are hungry. It, it It's like so simple. So when you were just talking about that, and somebody asked me this last week, like, well, why do they say um, why do they target the kids or why is it just campaigns? And instead of them saying, stop gambling. And the reason from what I've seen so far, like I go to a conference and the conference has three sponsors. One of them is the lottery. So we couldn't have the recovery conference without the lottery sponsoring it, which means you can't say stop gambling because then the lottery wouldn't get their piece of the puzzle. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, where in my mind, it should be like, stop gambling and the lottery will still help fix the damage. But yeah, it's a, it's a perpetual cycle. And one of my other questions to myself is, am I just surrounding myself with open-minded thinkers, right? Like I could jump on a meeting, like not knowing you, but know that you're my people just based on the environment and where I'm hanging out. So is it that I'm just finding my people because of who I am? Or is the world really changing? And I, the more and more I think, I think there's a lot more people trying to step out of that. They're tired of it. Like, like the drug thing is just as bad. Like the legal drug thing, you know, the prescriptions, the shit. I watch it in this household that I live in. And okay, well, you're not on heroin and crack anymore, but here's a different pill. Here's a different patch. Here's a different blah, blah, blah. Why? Why not try to get people off? Well, then nobody's making money, no, exactly. you know, it, exactly. and it's, it's so, it's sad. It's sad. Yeah. So I don't I, know if it's conspiracy or not. It just, it doesn't, it, you read Napoleon Hill or um, L. Ron Hubbard, right? And you think about these guys writing very genius things in the fifties and earlier, 
it's been broken a long time. I was like, if they're writing this stuff in the 50s, 70 years of bad education, bad politics, like all these things. And I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to go down this road with you like quite so intently, but it's obvious. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like there's more people talking about it. And, and maybe we can make a difference if we just keep fighting. Yeah. And I think, you know, thanks Alok for inspiring us to speak our truth because yeah, I do think we shy away from these conversations because we don't know where they're going to lead and we are scared we'll be judged and or criticized. And I think it's these conversations that help us to get clear. And even just in the last couple minutes, the conversation, I think for me, what I just in the courage to ask the question and say what I think, and then hearing your response, what what arose for me is yeah, maybe it's not like a conspiracy where people are consciously thinking like, let's hold them down. But I think people who are in power and are profiting from people's addictions, perhaps they're addicted to their power and their money and this, you know, this addictive mm, tendency that we have to chase that feeling of pleasure, whatever it is, maybe it's power and greed and money for some people. Uh, I think it is probably universal and it's not necessarily a conspiracy, but maybe recognizing as we have these more open and brave conversations that we are all caught in that craving and to have the courage to, to recognize that we are chasing something in excess that is and I don't think anybody can escape this in our world right now, especially with, you know, h- how our climate is changing and just the challenges we're facing as we do this progress or increase in money technology. I don't think anybody gets to escape the downfall. And maybe, as you say, we are realizing collectively something has to shift. So even the people who perhaps have these addictions that are more acceptable, like money and power. I don't know that they'd be listening to our podcasts, but maybe one of them or somebody gets touched by um, this open conversation that could we take responsibility for where we're at collectively and start to see that we are all doing this. You know, we are all chasing this pleasure and causing harm all of us when we do that and and start to recognize that we're maybe i would say evolving collectively to be able to see this this conscious awareness that we're in a loop we're in a cycle we're in a pattern and we have the capacity once we realize that we're in it we have the capacity to create change and i think that that essentially that's what people like you and me are starting to do and i don't think we're that unique or special i think like as you say there is a wave of of people wanting to be the change i wrote down so many notes when you were talking cuz you <laughs> said so many good things um <laughs> So the first thing I I want to acknowledge is that you're right. They probably are addicted. But here's the thing. Even the wealthiest and all of those, if they're not living to purpose and all of that, they're not real happy either. They're just as broken as all the rest of us, right? Um, 
so maybe that's the opportunity to hear like, okay, I have X amount of dollars, but yet I'm going home and, you know, beating my wife or drinking my night away or all of those things. Um, so I wanted to acknowledge that. And then, um, <laughs> oh my goodness, the, the cyclical thing, I, th this is, Again, just my perception, right? Because I was always with blinders on until my recovery journey. So when I thought about millennials, when they first came out, right? Like in veganism and all of these things, right? Like they were getting kind of um, chastised maybe, or it, it becomes a joke, right? Like it's still a joke. But then when you think about it, they're actually making a difference. We're talking about global warming. We're talking about, um, you know, our food sources and stuff. My mother and I are on a journey and I'm trying to teach her, you know, like, let's eat things that are less than five ingredients. Like the ice cream is just blowing us up. It might feel better. It's the same thing in that 90 seconds, right? Like the food is going into our body and urge, whatever. Um, but here's the irony of it all. When I, like I was, just contemplating this. Okay. Once upon a time, like farmers grew crops and, and slaughtered their own meat. Then we add all this stuff in hormones, the money equation, um, massing it out, all of this stuff. And now there's this whole new market to undo, to take us back to where we were before this whole cycle. It was like, we tried to make it better. It got screwed up and actually did more damage. And the, the sad thing is it's going to go on forever. Well, at least for four or five generations, right? Because the kids that were growing up on the hormones, having kids, like how many generations does it take? Like, there's a reason that 10 year olds have boobs bigger than 30 year olds. It's not just genes. It's the stuff we're putting in our bodies. Right. So it's very interesting. And that's, that's the lens I'm choosing to look at what's happening now is that um, we are in that awareness campaign and that the voices will matter. Like, if, if all of us that have um, students or that we're working as coaches or leaders and voices, if we're all saying the same thing, eventually like some light bulbs will go on. Cause mm -hmm. that's what happened for me. You know, like I didn't want to be involved before, but I was dark, you know, like it just, it wasn't a priority, but now that it's a priority and I'm listening, people say things different. But basically, they're all saying the same things. Like, you know, you listen to Mel Robbins and Vishan and like all these people, they're all saying the same things. The Buddhism, recovery dharma, like talking about the suffering is the same as you'd hear in, you know, other religions, but worded different way. Not textbook, but there's these themes. And I think the themes are emerging. I have to believe that. Yeah. And would you say, like, one of the things that I feel strongly about and and is my message really is that we have the capacity to heal ourselves and that it requires us our like our choice to take full responsibility for our lives and i when i work with people i see that until people get to that point they're disempowered as long as we think somebody else something else outside of us is going to solve the problem whether that is you know these 12 step programs or our counselor or our therapist or this medication or this product or whatever it is, we're literally giving our power away and back to that book, Conversations with God, because I think it's just fascinating, this full circle 
realization that actually everything we need is inside of us. And until we realize that it is like chasing your tail. So I hope, you know, if, if listeners can take one message away from this conversation, it would be to believe or ponder, or at least start to question that, that you have everything that you need inside of yourself already to heal and be whole and be happy and to break free from these limiting beliefs that say you're not enough or you're lacking or, you know, all the things that we seem to have, I don't know, accumulated on top of this sovereign and complete and full potential that is inherently always there. Is it okay if I add one more piece to that puzzle? Yeah, please. I think it's important that listeners understand that their beliefs, these fundamentals, their way of thinking, it's their responsibility, but it may not be their fault in a lot of cases they don't understand or their parents didn't understand or there's parents, parents didn't understand. Um, again, I'm, I can't say I'm an expert on this, but the information and the data I'm collecting is telling me that things do go back farther than we can imagine. And that subconscious is a very magical tool. And those boy, I call them the voices in my head. My bad one is called my attitude. And then my good one is called gratitude. So my attitude is actually not a product of Bobby the Awesome, right? Like it's just the noise of everybody else's stuff. And we wouldn't even know that. So I just want to throw out there, give yourself the grace and compassion and understand. And just because you're on a quest to find what's good for you and and that peace and that that wholeness that is inside of you that you spoke of, it doesn't mean you created it or that you're broken or like in the sense of you broke yourself or that you did wrong. Like there's no right or wrong in this. It's like just getting to the optimization of life and, and how you feel. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I do you know who Gabor Mate is. I do. Do you love he, him? I do. I love his, I love his work and his mission. Um, I don't know as much as I would like to about him, but yes. Yeah. He's amazing. I, He's been a powerful force in my life to understand um, healing. And for people who don't know who he is, he's a, a doctor who worked for a long time in different capacities, but for a long time, I think it was 10 years or so, helped um, people on the downtown east side in Vancouver who were um, addicted and um, unhoused and did just amazing work in recovery and addiction. And his whole philosophy is that um, people are addicted and every I think every single person he ever worked with on the downtown east side had a history of abuse um, in that we, we get caught in these patterns, exactly as you're saying, not because of our, the fault, like it's not our fault. We're not to blame ourselves for getting caught in these patterns of wanting to feel better. Often we've lived through very traumatic uh, experiences and, and in childhood typically, and we form these neural pathways, these coping mechanisms or these strategies to survive before our 
emotional, mental, nervous system is developed enough to choose anything else. It's the only way that we can survive is we learn these patterns of escape, of disassociation or whatever, you know, coping strategy that we find that allows our nervous system not to be overwhelmed. And I think you're you're making a really important point to have compassion for ourselves because nobody chooses to to be overwhelmed. We just are overwhelmed. And often it does start in childhood. And we're not making a conscious choice to get hooked or locked into these destructive patterns. And and his work at how I learned more about him is through this compassionate inquiry training weekend that I went to with him. And it was just fascinating to watch him work because he would, in the training, he was calling up people from the audience. We were all healthcare practitioners of some sort capacity. And it didn't matter who he called up and what their particular story was. It was basically the same that in childhood, something happened where we, our our needs were not met. The adult in our life did not respond in the way that we needed them to in one way or another, did not make us feel safe or loved or heard or seen or understood. And we started to, because of not having the skills or the development to do something constructive, we started to do something destructive, which triggered this whole pattern uh, in our nervous system. And we just keep that going as long as we're unaware of it. And when he took everybody up on stage one at a time and went through their story and the process, it was also so obvious that the adults in these in the lives of these children as they told their stories, they didn't know any better. They couldn't have done any better because their parents, like they were just carrying on these patterns of ineffectively managing the ups and downs of life. And what I learned that weekend was that really the one of the critical first step or one of the first steps in our healing is compassion first to have compassion for ourselves that we we didn't know better so this is what we did and also compassion for our adults who also didn't know better and and couldn't do anything other than what they were doing because they didn't know and it starts with that to have compassion for ourselves to see there was no other choice and then the second part of his process is to recognize what you actually needed to hear in that moment, what you actually needed the adult to do in that moment where this trauma or pain pattern started. And typically, I would say it's something like, um, you know, I'm here for you. I understand it's not your fault. And those are the things that we have to start to say to ourselves as a adults when we're in the healing process we have to actually say those things to ourselves to begin this compassionate inquiry process that will allow us to to heal 
Um, and I would encourage anybody who doesn't know Gabor Mate or his work to find a practitioner who could take them through that inquiry process, because I think it's profound. It's called the compassionate inquiry process. And I think whether you're stuck in like hardcore addiction or you're just in some, you know, maybe softer, less obvious pattern of negative behavior, um, everybody has that kind of healing work to do. I, I've never met anybody um, who didn't benefit from from that kind of work. So I appreciate you bringing up that that point, that piece. And I think, yeah, if you if you are caught in addiction, that is definitely the first step is to recognize, yeah, we do these things out of pain patterns that start in childhood almost inevitably 100% of the time, I would say. And that as a child, you didn't get what you wanted or needed. And that's where it started and to have compassion because you didn't know any better, but to still take responsibility and start to do your healing work and know that there are um, programs and people and options that that are out there that can help. So I know people get um, kind of their time, their energy and their focus starts to wane around this point. So maybe we should start to kind of try to wrap things up. Bobby, would you um, have any last things that you would want to say that if people are listening and thinking they want to take a first step out of addiction, what, what you would recommend or, or anything else? Well, I think that one of the the first things to do, and I guess it kind of ties into the compassion, right? Or giving yourself grace, um, start researching and learning, right? Like it could be listening to a podcast or a book or, or taking a book and, and those things are free, right? Like at the very basic, they're free. There's a lot of information and find what you connect to, because if you're resistant to the idea, like how I was, you know, initially with 12 step, it's not going to work because you're never going to buy in. So find what works for you. Um, like in the alcohol-free community, there's Annie Grace, there's um, who has one style, there's Paul who has another, like there's just so many options. Um, we didn't get to dive into what Jill does deeply and how it could impact addiction, but um, we might have to just do another whole show or something. Uh, so that would be the first thing is, is find what connects. You wouldn't eat um, food that doesn't taste good. Why would you take a recovery method that doesn't feel good or, or have a good fit, or you don't connect with the people, right? It's yours. It gets to be yours. Um, so that would be my first recommendation and just have an open mind and know like things aren't going to click the first time, maybe not the second time. And, and again, going back to compassion, I think that that's been a game changer for me. Um, as someone who wants to be like, well, I could do this. I could stay clean. I'm going to count my days and I'm going to have my, it's all ego BS. It's, it's really crap and it doesn't serve me. It doesn't serve others around me. Like just take the walk and go on the journey. And if I could stress one point, it's worth it. When you get to the other side, it is so freaking worth it. Mm. It's not perfect. The journey is not going to be perfect. The other side is not even going to be perfect. But when you see the potential, that's when everything changes. 
Well, I'll add to that, that that's what I think is so motivating for me in my work. And I, I will add a little bit about what I do just for listeners, if it's helpful, and then I'd be happy to record a whole other show with you. But that's the thing about realizing your power is even when you're not, and you never will be perfect, that feeling that you're in control of your life is so amazing. It's never going to be perfect, but it's so empowering. It's so fulfilling. It's so liberating. And so just to end, I will say that what I, um, I think the gift that I have to share is what I found that helped me is such a simple thing. And that's why I'm so passionate about sharing it because I feel like anybody could do this, literally like anybody can do this, is take 10 or 15 minutes every morning to practice mindful movement. And why I think that's so powerful is because when we do take our body through movement and learn to feel the body and slow down enough to feel the breath, we do start to come in contact with our sensations. We do start to begin to make a connection to the body that's always feeding us information. And if we practice, which it does take consistent practice, we start to be able to catch those moments in our day when we're triggered, when we're moving into before we're totally caught in fight and flight. We start to pick up on the beginning of the heart beating, the beginning of the knot in the stomach, the beginning of the constriction at the throat, the beginning of the heat in the face. And when we're in deeper relationship with our body, we have this source of information. And I really believe that's where we can step out of those patterns as we've talked about, because at the heart of it, it's those sensations in the body that are causing us to want to escape. So that's the whole power of what I teach or the whole passion behind what I teach is I believe that if we form a relationship with our body and our breath, we are accessing those subconscious, unconscious things that otherwise we would get caught in. So if you want to have a whole other conversation around that, I'd love to because it is my passion and my purpose. But um, thank you so much for bringing your passion and purpose to the table. I think it's critical. And I am going to hold that vision with you that in every town and city, we have these play places where we can have some fun without the substances and some just positive movement in that direction of, yeah, our human collective liberating ourselves from these patterns. Any last thing you wanted to add, Bobby? I just want to say thank you, Jill. I love our strategy of going with the flow and um, having a meaningful conversation. I think that's really important. You know, like we we need to value ourselves and have great um, conversation and surround ourselves with people that we can communicate with. And um, it's been a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. And listeners, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. I hope that you have uh, taken something positive away from this and take a first step in the direction of your own health and wellness. Thanks, everybody.